I could actually start with something a little lighter than today's newspaper. Because I did bring two other things that at least give me a head start and give us a head start, maybe. You know, they say, well, so why do we need a head start? Why not plunge into the real thing? Because I think we wouldn't make it otherwise. We have to have somehow a space. Ah. Somebody gave me this cartoon yesterday. I had seen it earlier. It's, it's not brand new, but I love it when I see it. I'll turn it around and I'll tell you what it is. It has uh, two dogs sitting on adjacent uh, yoga mats or meditation mats. Two dogs sitting around them. Uh, behind them are four candles burning, so they're in a zendo or something. And there's incense burning before them. Each of them. I think it's so cute. And one of them is saying to the other one, the key to meditation is learning to stay. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's true, isn't it? It was good to start with this. So here, I'll pass it to you. It can be passing around while Roberta is passing around the lesson in Everything Changes. You know, the <laughs> Roberta's passing around that, you know, the first of the three truths of experience that the Buddha said we should see is that everything is always changing. So this picture of Roberta when she's um, uh, 17 years old and Sylvia when she's 16 years old or something are now circulating around. And we look a little bit, don't you think you look like you, Roberta? Not that much. <laughs> I think I look like me that much. Everything changes, and we're ad adapting to it all the time. I think there's a way in which we're startled all the time. Uh-oh. Do you know there's a book called Uh-oh? Uh, that Seriously, the same person who wrote the book, Everything I Needed to Learn, I learned in the kindergarten. Robert Fulgram. He wrote a second book called Uh-oh. And, uh, and it's very thoughtful because I actually think without uh, completely simplifying it too much, we go along in life and we go along until something happens. We say, uh-oh. And it's something that disturbs the mind. Here's a way we could, when, when we did that meditation together this morning, I gave slightly different instructions from usual. What did you think about them? Did you notice that they were different? And what did you think about them? Maria, you want to say? Because I see you said yes. But you have to shout because... <laughs> I just startled you. Shout out so that everybody will hear you. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the um, ease with which you were speaking about being at ease. Um, I don't know what else to say. I wasn't prepared. She called on me. I hadn't raised my hand. <laughs> but you actually... Uh, shook your head, yes, when I said, did you like the meditation? That was an accident, Maria. I wouldn't have called on you otherwise. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Other people, did you like that? What was different about it, the rhetorical question? So, but Susan will answer the rhetorical question. Go, Susan. I liked, um, I liked comfort with dignity. I like that phrase. Um, I mean, you know, to be comfortable and yet to have a certain sense of dignity. And one thing I became aware of is that my head kind of, kind of goes down like that. Yeah. And then I have to, but if I think about being dignified, my head won't be going like that. Yeah, comfortable dignity is, I, I actually read it 
or heard it somewhere this week again, and I don't know who started to say sit in a dignified way. And you don't often think about sitting in a dignified way. You behave in a dignified manner. But I thought you behave in a dignified way when you're respecting the situation. So I thought there's a way of respecting the situation. Like last week we, was it here? Last week? Somewhere. I wasn't here last week, so it couldn't have been here. But in the last two weeks, I began to tell the story of, must have been here. No, I wasn't here. Of the movie um, Monk with a Camera. Did you see Monk with a Camera? It's a lovely movie. I saw you going out of that movie, Mark. I called out, Mark, 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 and you were already out and gone. So, didn't you love it? I thought it was great. So, did you see it? Great, great movie. Uh, it's about Nikki Freeland, whose grandmother, Diana Freeland, was a founding editor of Vogue magazine for many years, grew up in that family, somehow got involved with studying Buddhism, became a monk, in, took, took robes in the Tibetan tradition, and now, almost 30 years later, has just been appointed by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to be the abbot of a monastery in India. And uh, all of the while, through his 30 years of being a monk and practicing, uh, he's been perfecting his skill as a photographer. He comes from a line of artists. At one point, which is really a lovely uh, sort of karmic rewards type of story, when they're building the monastery that he is now, the new building for the monastery that he has been appointed the head of, uh, they run out of money in this tremendous project halfway through. And he is able to, uh, with he's got friends who are able to produce an art show and sell the art. And the art is his photography, which is really noteworthy, wonderful photographs. Uh, so there's a way in which his practice actually paid for finishing the monastery. And uh, for those of us who... Uh, uh, came up in a tradition where when you took robes, you actually gave up any kind of worldly uh, vocation, let alone worldly goods. You didn't keep a camera in, you know, you have a begging bowl and a roll, a robe, that's all, you don't have a camera with good lenses and all that. But the fact that he had this great skill and his teachers all along encouraged him to use that great skill. It was his art. So he uses his art and builds that monastery. Now, I can't remember why I started to tell you that story. We were, we were doing so. Oh, I got a great word from him. At the end of the movie, uh, someone says, what is the practice that your monks do in your monastery? And he said, what we do is we content ourselves. I love that. Matter of fact, today we'll name this class, we content ourselves. Because we have two choices. Every minute, you know, this happens, that happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Life keeps happening, big and small. And as Maria just said, oh, you startled me. Everything startles us. If we're not startled, then there's nothing happening, really, that ruffles the mind. I really was uh, trying to say the instructions in the way that facilitated the, the attention-relaxing into this moment without 
having a problem with anything, that uh, he said in a dignified way, you don't even have to, there's not even an effort to breathing, nor an effort to following the breath. The breath arrives and leaves and arrives and leaves. And from just a resting, benign, open attention, how many people <laughs> found that it was uh, re reasonably comfortable to rest in that sense of change? Not even coming and going. It's change. It's up and down or in and out and up and down. Yeah. This is terrific. As opposed to the anxiety. This is terrific. What's your name? Christine. Christine. Justine. Justine. Sorry that I'd forgotten it. Thank you, Justine. Uh, that's such a good example of how we might understand the way the mind gets stuck with stuff or not. Here, we often have the feeling that all, when we're worrying about something, that this worry has arrived and it's grabbed my mind. Actually, my sense is that my mind or my attention has grabbed the worry. It's a really, it's, it's an interesting way to shift the understanding. But when I began to think that way, I began to understand, for instance, as we sit down or even go for a walk, you don't have to be sitting. You have to be deciding to let the attention be a certain way. Okay, I'm going to just let my attention, I'm going to try to let my attention rest in the awareness of just this moment and shifting feelings around this whole beingness here. A beingness of up and down and in and out. and um, That's about it. rising, falling, however the experience is experienced. We often call it breath in, breath out, but so many things happen. Shoulders up, rib cage out, belly out. It's just this is happening in, out, up, down, and really resting in the in, out, up, down, in, out, up, down, in, out, up, down, that's all, just in, out, up, down, and the, and, uh, the mind relaxes, in, out, up, down, and at some point, my sense is, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think uh, there's actually fingers involved, but I have the feeling that the mind grasping for things to chew over, this worry, that worry, mind relaxes, that falls out of its hands, and then it just relaxes. And the mind is expansive and comfortable. And then here comes the thought, floats back in the mind again, from wherever it's floating, floats back in the mind. And actually it's a line from Tibetan practice, and it's really, I've loved it. It says, all afflictions are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. And I have a feeling that when there's just awareness in, out, up, down, here and now, up, down, in, out, here, now, pleasant, present, pleasant, present. It's, just like, a, it's like my head becomes an open space or my mind. Of course, the mind is not in the head, the mind is the mind, but 
what we feel as that part of us that grabs onto something, I sense as being vastly open, just as the breath comes in and out, the afflictions come in and out. Here comes that same afflictive thought, and it's as if the attention says, ah, I saw that thought already. I don't feel like having it now. I'm too relaxed to grab it. And it goes by. And so we really do. They're really, not we, there really is a different experience with the affliction as it comes back in. Does that make sense, Justine? I'd, I'd love to think of a different metaphor other than, uh, because truth to tell, I imagine it as my head, which it isn't, becomes, has a hole in the top of it and all that stuff flies out of it, which it doesn't. But it just arises and disappears in the moment, in the attention, in the awareness. But for my purposes, it works. <laughs> if I say, I'm so relaxed now, things will fly out of my head. <laughs> it just works. It's a heuristic device. It's a good cartoon. We should make a book of because we we would have to work with all those captions. I, I can't get that thought out of my mind, and you see things pushing it out, and the, and the thought grabbing it, and not wanting to go out. But we, so we started out by saying, uh, all right, what's the context for how hard it is to keep the mind from grasping onto afflictive thoughts and resting. The point of the resting, by the way, is not just to be finished with afflictive thoughts, but to be able... It, the afflictive thoughts themselves skew the lens that we understand through so that things happen in our personal lives or in the lives of our community or in the world. And if our uh, ability to attend to them is constricted because some afflictive thought has frightened it, Someone said before, oh, you startled me. I think the afflictive thoughts, in addition to the different flavors of affliction, like lust or anger or boredom or restlessness, all the flavors of affliction, what they share in common is they startle us. Every flavor of affliction startles us. You suddenly have, uh, walking down the street, minding your own business, and you walk past a pizza store and some smell wafts out and suddenly you think, I have to have lunch. I have to have lunch right now because I'm really hungry and I really, if I get hungry, I won't be good at this next meeting. Every, every, and it's not a terrible thought, I'd like a pizza, but it might not be the most best judgment at that point, especially if you're late for your meeting or whatever. But, in a, but any kind of, any one of those startling thoughts confuses the mind for a minute so you could have the thought, and you could say, you know what, after this meeting, I'll have a pizza, relax. Or then you could say, ah, oh, I see so-and-so across the street, aiming in the same place that I'm going, probably going to my same meeting, fully. I don't like that person. The mind gets all clenched up about it. You say, well, wait a minute, when I get there, it's a new meeting, I'll just be, you know, we'll see what happens. I love the definition of equanimity. I think I'm saying it all the time these days. And I always say, I heard it from Gil Fronstahl. He says, equanimity is saying, huh, it's like this. Let's see what happens next. That's like my favorite line since I heard Gil said that last year. That so reminds me that what my mind in not alert state does 
is it gets startled by something and it says, ah, from this it's definitely going to be that, or this bad outcome will happen, or it'll never happen that I get to do this. It jumps to a conclusion. And that one line, hmm, this is happening. Let's see what happens next is so sane. We'll see what happens next. Means there is going to be a next. And, and, and even, if, you know, who knows how much of a next, but there'll be at least a little next. And there's a next in which I can think. So I've been carrying along. I know that you know from last year, I, I said one of my New Year's resolutions was the practice of TIO. Who remembers TIO? Such a big teaching. Who remembers TIO? I made such a big fuss about it. TIO. TIO is thinking it over. <laughs> huh? Not thinking it over because I'm such a. Um, if among, now I'm going to say my shortcoming, my short, my my most uh, uh, fusible fuse, but I don't know if it's the most. Uh, I have a particular greed. Uh, I don't have, I don't have substance lust, fortunately, but I have experience lust, so that. Uh, on the one hand, I'm quite aware that planes are too crowded, the flights are too long, I am older and older, the airports are too difficult, my immune system is not what it used to be, da-da-da-da. And if someone were to call this afternoon and say, I'm arranging, uh, actually, I'm giving a, uh, uh, there's an enormous retreat, uh, 50 people are coming tomorrow to a retreat uh, and in uh, in Versailles, <laughs> and uh, uh, in a chateau, uh, and uh, at the last minute the teacher can't come, but uh, we could get you a plane ticket. Uh, could you be here tomorrow to teach a three-day retreat? You want to? And I'm going to sit the February retreat here, you know. So I happen to have those times blocked off. And I thought to myself, someone, I was just finished telling someone in a conversation, I'm finished with traveling, it's too hard, da-da-da-da. And then I realized you shouldn't have said that because it's not true. Someone calls, someone calls and says, you know, we can get you a ticket by tomorrow. You could go to Versailles. You want to do that? Absolutely, I'm going. You know, but, uh, so I, and this is in spite of the fact that I have the practice, I think, of T-I-O. So that's to tell you that I'm aware that one of my um, blind spots is lust of experience. Someone says, "Yeah, <laughs> that's about it, Roberta." You know, the the hypothetical phone call that says we're arranging a mindfulness retreat in Antarctica. I would think, "Oh, empress penguins, you know, emperor they are, emperor those big, they're they're." they're you know, they're as tall as I am. That would be so cool. I had a bucket list, at, you know. Anyway, thinking it over. But in the largest sense, I think the whole of practice is training the mind moment to moment to think it over. It's not just my lust. It's everybody's lust. That we are, and I think more and more because we're, our nervous systems are frazzled, I think we really need to build something in so we think it over. This is um, this is Viktor Frankl. 
Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, only by lack of meaning and purpose. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. It is not freedom from conditions, but freedom to take a stand towards the conditions. He wrote that actually just after the conclusion of the Second World War. The beginning of that piece, which I didn't read to you, is we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any sense of circumstance, in any set of circumstances. Actually, someone gave us a, a serving platter a few years ago that you put out sandwiches, I guess, on. I mean, pick up all the sandwiches, what's written on the serving platter is says, it says, uh, everything depends on attitude, choose a good one. But I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, not but. We have that ability to choose. That's it. I think Thich Nhat Hanh, whom somebody invoked as we sat, uh, really taught that all the time. Choose peace. Take this step with peace. Choose peace. I think every, a zillion times a day, there's a crossroads between, I can get upset about this, or I could choose peace. My actual New Year's resolution for this year, not that I got over the TIO completely mastered, but that's in there, but my new one for this year, because I'm really, I really am convinced that that's true, that we could choose peace, that I could choose peace, is I see my mind getting the least flair of an opinion about something. You know, Somebody says, I'll call you back in 15 minutes, and they don't call in 15 minutes, they don't call in 20 minutes, and my mind starts to say, huh, I shouldn't have even, I erase it. Don't call. I just, I'm refusing to give air time. I'm trying to refuse. I'm not succeeding all the time. And yesterday, I actually got involved almost like, it's like hatching a little annoyance thought. And I was enjoying it, you know, because I was right. And and it, it, it and the truth to tell, watch it in yourself. There's a little frisson of excitement about that when you think you're right. You think there's one. It's a little bit short of calling up somebody and saying, "Hey, do you want to know what so and so said about this?" It's it's not as blatant as gossip or bad news between. But really saying to yourself, "I don't need this in my mind. I don't need this in my mind." May I be free of enmity and danger, which is the first line of one of the metta chants, is really what I'd like to do. The danger of uh, enmity is that it pollutes your mind. I don't have to be thinking bad stuff. I mean, I, I certainly, it doesn't mean you take your leave of your senses and you don't do what's reasonable. I mean, you do, but 
think it over. Do I want to... Mm. So I'm getting up to whether or not we can look at the newspaper yet. Well, this was the question that I wanted to maybe frame today in. Um, somebody I hadn't heard from. Uh, somebody I hadn't heard from in, in actually quite a lot of years. Um, who's a, a psychologist and a... Uh, and a, and a mindful, she's, she's a mindful psychology teacher. She teaches mindful. There's a very big aspect of psych, psychology practice these days that is infused with mindfulness, mindfulness-based cognitive behavior, mindfulness-based stress reduction, all to the good. I think it's wonderful. And she was somebody that was in a training program that I did a long time ago, that I taught a long time ago. And she, I haven't heard from her in a long time. And uh, she wrote to me saying, I could, you know, I'd really like to talk to you because I don't, this is a hard time for me to be teaching. And uh, in my note back to her, which is how I wanted to frame today, I, share, I wrote, I share your dismay about the situation in the world and the challenge of staying at least buoyed up to keep one's own mind afloat as well as those we work with. So I think that's that's really the the challenge these days is to keep your mind paying attention. It's not a time to go live in a cave. Hopeful. And then I'm left with well, the question is how do you be hopeful? And this must be here for a reason, this Alexander. Oh, I know why it's here. Um one more, then we'll look at the paper. I went to sleep with gum. Who has not read Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I, was, I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. In the carpool... Wait, at breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. <laughs> in the car, Mrs. Poole, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was getting scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be scarsick. No one even answered. <laughs> I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. <laughs> the line I like is, I could tell it was going to be a no good, terrible, horrible, very bad day. We can't tell anything. Let's see what happens next. That was why I thought of it. I was going to use that as the coda to Gill's teaching. Does anybody know what happened since yesterday? I just opened the paper when I came. Well, there, I think the, they published another and all of them. 
goes to the families. So immediately upon unveiling its new cover, a depiction of Muhammad, the French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo on Tuesday reignited the debate pitting free speech against religious sensitivities that has embroiled Europe since 12 people were killed during an attack in its Paris offices by Muslim extremists a week ago. The cover shows a bearded prophet shedding a tear and holding up a sign saying, Je suis Charlie, a rallying cry that has become synonymous with support of the newspaper and free expression. Above the cartoon on a green background is the headline, All is Forgiven. While surviving staff members at an emotional news conference describe their choice of cover as a show of forgiveness, most Muslims consider any depiction of their prophet to be blasphemous. Moreover, interpretations quickly swirled around the Internet that the cartoon is also contained disguised crudity. One of the Egypt's highest Islamic authorities warned that the cartoon would exacerbate tensions between the secular West and observant Muslims, while de death threats circulated online against staff members. A preacher, so-and-so, Anjem Chowdhury, a former leader of a radical group that was banned in England, was quoted in Britain's independent newspaper as saying, that the image was an act of war and it would be punishable by death if judged by a Sharia court. So I'm sorry to startle you with that. I don't, you know, this is a, I don't even know how to frame this. I was going to say, what, do you, what would the Buddha say? What would the Buddha have said? Where can we put this anywhere in the context of um, how would a Buddhist think about this? You ready to tell what you thought uh, about it? This is Heidi Bourne. She's my friend, and uh, she often comes here when she's down from um, uh, Arcata, Arcata, uh, and uh, she's uh, a mindfulness teacher in Arcata, and uh, she's just finished a very uh, exciting mindfulness training course given at UCLA headed by Diana Winston, who is a member of the Teachers' Council of Spirit Rock. And I, I was meeting with Heidi yesterday, and she said, I taught this the other day up in Ukiah. So I said, well, good. I don't know what to say about it. You come, and you'll help me say about it. So come up here, Heidi, and we'll do the, see, if that, see if that works. All right, have oh, wait, 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 here's another on button. Oh, there you are. Here, have a... Well, it's such a pleasure to be here. I don't get to come too often, so it's really, really sweet. So as Sylvia and I were, were talking yesterday, I said, you know, the only way I can go about this in my own practice and in teaching and in addressing these this tragedy and the violence and the heartache that is so hard to integrate is to feel some optimism. And I hope that's not crazy, but I, 
and I hope it's not sticking my head in the sand, but I think that my, my feeling about it was as I watched the news and looked at the newspaper and saw the millions of people who showed up to say, this violence has to stop with me. At least I hope that's what, what the feeling was. I feel bolstered. I feel optimistic that we can go to that place that says, this is so wrong, and we can have empathy, and we can have love and trust and honor and all of those things. But I'm reminded about a couple of things about what the Buddha taught. There's a, uh, a new book by Karen Mazin Miller, who is a Zen priest in Los Angeles, and there, her book is called Paradise in Plain Sight. Mm-hmm. And she talks about just the practice of showing up in a room full of strangers on a day with beautiful daylight, and why, why do we come in to practice burning perfectly good daylight to sit and do nothing? <laughs> That's what she says. And, you know, I really think that what we have to do is practice. We have to come right here and to be with one another. And just like what Sylvia said when she started about the traffic was terrible, and yes, we could all stay home and practice, but we actually have to do this together. We have to come together. We have to feel our pain together so we can actually recognize what this pain feels like so we can say, oh, greed is like this. Oh, ill will and hatred is like this. This is what it does in me. All right, take a breath. I am in a room full of people whose intention also is to be okay. So we come together and we do this and the practice, that actually the teaching that I'm reminded of from the Buddha, and please correct me if I don't have this quite right, is he teaches that by protecting myself, I protect others. And by protecting others, I am protecting myself. I love that teaching. It's like we have rules about how we drive. And if we all follow the rules, we don't get hurt. So when we practice and we we come here together and we see the ways that we harm ourselves, small and large, we understand what that's like and we start to have tools for not doing that. So then when these horrific things happen and so many people are affected, we're reminded again and again how important it is that we're practicing and that we're together and we support one another's desire to not harm ourselves and to care for one another. Mm-hmm. And I want to say something about this wrongness and rightness that is so wonderful. There's a book called Being Wrong, and I can't remember the, who the author is. But she's done a lot of study around what is happening in the body about wrongness and rightness. And in fact, you can do this right now as an experiment to just get that sense of when you are right and you know it and you have that indignation, how does that feel? And we all kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, we get a little bit constricted and we get buoyed up. And, and that constriction of I'm right, there's no space in that. There's, there's no room to learn anything in that. But if we flip that around, what is it like to be wrong? 
And then we can feel, I feel it in my body, that sense of, ah, you know, I soften a little bit. I come back a little bit. I become a little porous. And that's where we learn. So what is right and what is wrong in, in, what, in what happened in Paris? We can all see that really plainly. But what do we have to learn from it? And how can we incorporate that in our practice? So that's what Sylvia and I were talking about yesterday. Oh, I so appreciate that last part. Stay there. That uh, that last part you said about the ability to um, that really what you might call civil discourse, where people might have a really like a discussion where they actually meant to discuss, not to defeat. You know, not not a debate society, because. Um, I, th I think so much about just what you were saying about you feel better in yourself, that one of the key lines in the end of the Metta Sutta that I like so much is by not clinging to fixed views, the, the idea, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, you know? Sometimes I, I, our mutual friend, um, Tony Bernhardt, who sometimes comes to teach when I'm not here on a Wednesday, Tony used, to, Tony used to tell me about his uh, practice of driving in his car when he left work to the 25-minute drive till he got home and turning on talk radio of the vituperative, terrible kind that he usually choose not to listen to and uh, saying, I listened to it all the way home to see if I can listen to it, thinking maybe I could learn something. I could be wrong. And not that terrible feeling I don't listen to the vituperative talk radio because it's too too startling to me and it makes me too uncomfortable and I get frightened that people might believe it and all of that and everything would be yeah. but you know to be able to say well he's got freedom of speech there he is on the radio saying things that I know are a lie but to listen and say well he's just saying that I don't have to I don't have to be anything about it, not offended. I could think about it. What did you all think about what Heidi just said about right and wrong and this whole... Tia? I, I like what you started with about coming with some optimism. And just it hit me that that's how we should, I should look at anything like this. It's, it doesn't mean there isn't sadness, doesn't mean it isn't horrible, but just finding some little piece of optimism mm -hmm. so that you can the comment is is an appreciation of, of looking at things with some optimism because in that optimism there's an openness and and I think when we come to our practice with some level of optimism it just feels better you know just really when it comes down to it 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 just feels better in my heart probably in yours and in my mind, and I'm more at ease if I can look at what is possible. How can things be okay instead of everything is such a mess, it's not okay. And I, I think, what, well, I'm going to come right away, that you said just before that's so important, is one of the things that happens if we're here, instead of at home in front of our individual computers, is that you have other people, so even when your own mind flags and you think ah it's really good the whole thing is down the drain you see other people came so they must feel you know that uh, 
when three or more is ga are gathered in my name, you know, that, that there's just a sense. People come together, there's got to be something there, and it holds you, it, it supports you. It holds, I'm not alone in this. I, I sat through many, many retreats where my own energy was, I'm starting to think, why am I here? It's all not true. Because the mind does all kinds of crazy things. And then I look around and say, all these other people, diligent. So they're probably right. I'm just having a moment. So you use other people that way to hold you up. What were you going to say? People had some questions. Go ahead. Yeah. He, he, he experienced... Uh, it's, on. it's on now? Yes. And thinking, of course, of his experience in, in during the Vietnam War and experiencing atrocity at, at a huge scale. But that it brings a sense of responsibility. How do we examine our responsibility for what happened uh, along with uh, the optimism and the openness and the togetherness but beneath that, what is it about our society that we're experiencing that is causing the responsibility to look at it? Um, I, I think peace is possible is a basis of optimism. I mean, if you really believe that peace is possible, then peace is possible. Right behind you. Didn't you have your hand up? Somebody did. Marty, you're next. Just to go back to um, the being wrong and letting yourself soften um, reminds me a lot of something that we talked in talked about in my first semester of college this year. I'm an acting major, and we talk a lot about letting ourselves be vulnerable and how the only way that we can be comfortable in our classes and become an ensemble is letting ourselves be wrong and not putting up our defenses and letting ourselves like open to vulnerability and being embarrassed and being wrong and being sensitive, but being able to share that with each other. And with that, being able to accept each other and become kind of just like one unit of acceptance. Marty was right here. There you go. Then we'll come back there. I was uh, at a Quaker meeting. I regularly go to uh, a Quaker meeting at Friends House in Santa Rosa. And uh, every year there's, uh, or every month, there's the advices and queries. And this one had to do about uh, living in community and uh, caring for each other. And... Um, and what occurred to me that I just think is so relevant um, is we so often use our allegiance to the group or the family or the community that we identify with as a basis for creating divisiveness. It's us and then it's them out there. 
And so the way I framed it to myself, uh, the experience of really working with uh, trust and, and openness and vulnerability within your community is it's a, a way of practicing that way of relating to every single human being in the world. And that coupled with taking responsibility for the way things are. Um, and looking inward and seeing the divisiveness and conflict that we struggle with within ourselves and seeing the outside world as a reflection of that. And then just saying, hey, we're all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. And having compassion and using that to develop wisdom as to how to radiate that um, to everybody on the planet and recognizing that we really are in the same boat and we better take care of this boat because uh, we all need that for ourselves and each other. There you go, one person back there. And then coming around to you, it's good to know that people have things to say. Good morning, my name is Paula. Thank you, Sylvia, and thank you, Heidi, for bringing up this topic. Um, currently, I am challenged with, um, with a leadership role in San Francisco with um, Master Shaw's Love, Peace, and Harmony Center. And we are going through a reorganization. And it is um, so necessary for us to understand that there are infinite possibilities in between and around right and wrong. Um, I, I have recently um, felt stalked by my fellow members um, in regard to how I was leading and what I was saying and the words that were in my emails. And it just had to stop. And I just got real honest in regard to, you know, it's really terrifying um, trying to lead this organization because I feel like I have to wear a garland of garlic to just come to the meetings. And this is really about love, peace, and harmony. And, you know, after I was able to say that, you know, there was this ah moment in the room and there was this profound silence and some contemplation on, on the members' parts. And I just invited everyone to share their experiences of either personally having that happen to them or witnessing somebody else going through that. And that just opened up such a new conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. Mm, thank you, Paula. Uh, okay. Yes, I'm, I'm just um, struggling, I should say, with um, feelings I've been having uh, in all this news that we are reading. You know, I have come... And in things I have read, uh, I have come more and more and more to really, I don't know when I use the word despise, um, but really hold at fault orthodoxy in religion. Um, because, and I'm talking about extreme orthodoxy, not people who 
go to church every week. Um, because, and I was thinking, oh, it's certain groups, you know, at first, that they're the one, like, we see what happened, the Muslims, and, uh, oh, well, you know. Uh, but when I started thinking about it, I thought, well, I don't know, um, the Catholics have hidden for years the uh, abuse of children, you know, by, they, they took care of that for years. And then I read two things, and, and it really startled me. One was an article in The New Yorker about um, the fact that in Borough Park in Brooklyn, um, there's the largest orthodox, ultra-orthodox Jewish population. And um, it turns out that a very prominent member of the, uh, of the uh, population there uh, was abusing kids. And one kid finally decided to tell his father, and, and they talk about what ensued. And what ensued was he got away with it. Um, and nobody would do anything about it because he was so important to the community. And I thought, Jews? You know, like, then last night on the news was a piece that, you know, they had a, a, pic, a picture in the front of most newspapers, the front page of the march in Paris, and Andrea Merkel in the middle. Guess what? There's an ultra-Orthodox newspaper, and you know what they did? It, it, the paper is in Israel. Uh, they blanked, they fixed it so that there were no women in, in, in the picture. Right. And I thought to myself, really good work, you know, good work there. And so I think that we, I'm listening to us, and I'm thinking, how do you get any of this um, respect for others into those groups? Into those groups. How do you get them to hear it's okay to be different than we are? It's you know, fine. You know, you know, Roberta, I really pick up the passion in your speech and how, how painful all of this <laughs> discovery is to you. Very I, it, it's very painful. I read that same article. That person in Borough Park was clergy in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to make it worse, you know. Yeah. And I think what you end up here, this one person was really wanting to say something. That's the last one. But, and I, I, what I pick up in the passion of what you're saying is my sense that somewhere, uh, uh, the, it, in order to have hope, I, it can't be in the hope, for myself anyway, it doesn't work to think that people whose minds are so clamped into a particular rigid ideology of whatever kind are going to suddenly see above the uh, edges of it. What I am hopeful about is that the whole rest of the world, most of which is under 25, is going to want to live out this century in some sort of a way that makes sense on this planet. And that the growing up people whose minds are not yet stuck in a, uh, any kind of a rigidness that does not see that basic thing of we're all part of the same planet. You know, it's really the opposite. I hadn't planned it that way, but you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that meditation that we did, which I think really, for me at least, makes it, 
such a moment of, I am not alone in this whole world. The whole world and everyone else on it breathing is with me, breathing in unison with the whole green world. Really, Thich Nhat Hanh, may his passing time be without suffering, was the one who said that. We are just breathing peace together until the end. And, I, and ideology of any kind, we know from the last century, we know from all the centuries, is terrifying. I'm glad we have friends to be with. One more person. Well, so I'm Diana, and just to build on what you said, I mean, I also, like Heidi, have helped some optimism, a lot of it based on the conversations that are happening around this and the dialogue. And I felt this both also in the realm of social justice and racism in this country. There are some great conversations going on, and I think there's nuance. You know, the Muslims are suffering in France, just like the Jews are. They're afraid. So, and I also have hope for the younger generation because their attitudes are more flexible and fluid. So that's all I'll say. And there are half a million Muslims living in France. A lot. 10% ten, ten of the population. And if... Most of them not caring less about extremism. Most of them, most of them secular and most... Most of them citizens. It, it, it'll. I I also love that picture of not only the however many hundreds of thousands out, but of people that I recognized. Never mind, because my paper is not blanked out. And for those of us who remember uh, Selma, yeah. people walking. Yeah. Um, you know that that sort of everybody. Walking, that really is just we Charlie, that all of the people of different religious leaders, all of them walking together. One of the people walking linked hands, arms with Angela Merkel, uh, is a Muslim cleric in France and walking with them. May I say one? Yeah, go ahead. So when we feel despair and we feel stuck, not knowing how, how, what to do because it's so easy to be there. To take heart, truly, to take heart in your practice. It's so important and it's so valuable. It's so beautiful. Even when the doubt comes, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Somebody, some, when you're home and you're practicing, somebody somewhere else is also practicing. And you can just know that and you can be supported by that. This practice is so beautiful, and it's so profound. So remember that. Enjoy it. You know what? We really have to end, because it's time. It's after the time. But I always recall at moments like this that we were here on a Wednesday 14 years ago, on September uh, 11th. I was here. You were here. You were here, Mija. I was here. We were here on September 12th. It was good to be together. Uh, it was good to be together. And what we did, which we don't have time to do, well, maybe we do. Uh, let's not do refuges to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. I'll just say for you in English, the uh, precepts, which felt so good to be in a room full of people 
in a world full of chaos, to know that one is surrounded by people who are prepared to say, I undertake the vow to refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the vow to abstain from taking that which is not freely given to me. I undertake the vow to abstain from using speech that's exploitive or abusive. I undertake the vow to abstain from expressing my sexuality in a way that's exploitive or abusive. I undertake the vow to refrain from any intoxicant that clouds my mind and renders me unable to fulfill these precepts. Thank you very much. I forgot to tell you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.